Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today we welcome James H. Madison, the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor of History Emeritus at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Professor Madison is the recipient of this year's Frederick Jackson Turner Award for a Lifetime of of Achievement in the Field of Midwestern History. The Turner Award is given each year by the Midwestern History Association. Welcome, Jim, and congrats on winning this year's Turner Award. Thank you, John. I'm just really, really delighted and honored to, uh, to be the awardee. Jim, what role has Turner played in your own scholarship, and has he inf- influenced your work? Oh, he, he really has. I'm of that generation that I read Turner as an undergraduate and certainly as a graduate student. And um, I don't want to be an old guy lamenting the olden days, but I think for younger scholars, especially scholars of the Midwest, uh, there are good reasons to pick up some of Turner's essays and to look at them and think about them. He was one smart guy. Uh, my own connections uh, come from, I'm, I'm kind of a descendant of Turner. If you do the genealogy, uh, I worked with two professors in graduate school who both were had worked as graduate students with professors whose professor had, had worked with Frederick Jackson Turner. So I'm like the great, great grandson of Frederick Jackson Turner on two sides in terms of, of educational genealogy. And both of those professors um, were, were deeply steeped in Turnerian traditions. Uh, one in particular, Martin Ridge, who was a historian of the West and the Midwest and editor of the Journal of American History for a long time, um, he, he kind of lived and breathed Frederick Jackson Turner. And um, again and again, and we were very close and as a young scholar, listening to him talk about the discipline, scholarship, um, and American history. He came back to Turner, and he came back also, and this is, of course, what Turner gives us, he came back to Regents. To, to the regions of America and to particularly the Mississippi Valley region. And so I, uh, I sort of had that stuff in the nursery of uh... Tell us a little bit about Martin Ridge. Some of us have run across his work when we have worked in the field of Western history, and Martin Ridge certainly comes up in the debate over the merits of the new Western history. But I tend to put Ridge in the column of soft critics of the new Western history. So tell us. Well, Martin Ridge is one of the smartest historians I've ever known. He's he's deceased, of course, but he was a very sophisticated, thoughtful scholar with a wide range of interests. And that's why he became the editor of the German American History, and I think was a superb editor. Uh, I was an editorial assistant and the associate editor with Martin, so I spent years, several years, working closely with him, um, editing the German American History, which, as most 
people know, maybe not a number of folks, uh, but was once the Mississippi Valley Historical Review. There's some of us in Midwestern history still a little resentful that they took our regional journal and made it a national journal, but that's also a sign of success. Uh, Martin Ridge um, was certainly an older scholar. I mean, he was a veteran of World War II. He served in the war. Um, but and, and he had he had a kind of cowboy and Indian uh, approach to Western history in some ways, but in other ways he was he was very current with scholarship, changing trends. He knew about race and gender uh, back in the 1970s. Um, it wasn't what he did as a scholar. It probably wasn't mostly what he did as a teacher, but he knew about it, and I think. As editor of the Journal of American History, he was very open to incorporating new fields, uh, including the new Western history. I happen to know that I can remember him talking about this very young scholar in Western history named Patty Limerick. Um, <laughs> and uh, there were occasionally um, uh, humorous comments, but there were serious comments. And I think he saw soon as that scholarship began, not only with Professor Limerick, but with many, many others. Uh, I think Mark Ridge was the kind of guy who, who could get it, who could understand it, and who could make it part of the journal of American history, if not always part of his own particular At the Midwestern History Association, we've been trying to create a platform for more work about the history of the Midwest, of course. Um, in part because the field of Western history has tended to lop off the chunk of the country to the east of the Mississippi River, um, including uh, Western historians such as Patty Limerick, who you just mentioned. Um, Patty Limerick and others have tended to focus on the far west, and the part of the United States to the east of the Mississippi River gets left out, or at least it has in recent decades. I wonder if you could comment on what you see as the health of the field of Midwestern history? Well, I think it's got a major transfusion, transplant, and reinvigoration with the birth of the Midwestern History Association, the birth of the journal, the model of the conference, conferences, and a variety of other initiatives that you, John, and others have, have uh, created in the last uh, four or five years. Uh, and that's essential. Uh, we, we need in Midwestern history, we need, a, we need a platform, we need a structure, we need um, we need an organization. Um, one of the problems has always been that many of us working in, in the field have felt often that we're working in isolation. Um, so we need ways to connect. We need ways not just to connect digitally, which of course is wonderful these days, but also to connect face to face and to sit in a bar and have a drink or a cup of coffee and talk about it. I was, I was very fortunate when I was very young to have a, two or three opportunities to, uh, to do that. Um, and let me just mention those quickly, and you can follow up if you want, John. But one was at the Newberry Library in Chicago in the late 1970s, where Newberry and a historian named Richard Jensen, a name that ought to be known to young scholars because Richard made significant contributions, especially to Midwestern political history. But Richard Jensen led at the Newberry a series of workshops and conferences and fellowships 
that brought to that wonderful library in Chicago, scholars from all over the Midwest. Um, and, and I have fond memories of the conversations we had. Let me just give one example, a fellow from Nebraska, Fred Lutke. And Fred was just a little, this was in the late 1970s, just a little older than I was, but very sophisticated about the new social history, um, about ethnic history, immigration, and other issues. And Fred and I and several other young scholars were there. We spent, um, we came to some conferences. Uh, we spent uh, summer fellowships there. On, I did on two occasions, spent a whole summer there. Left my wife and children behind in Bloomington. That's not a happy part of the story. <laughs> but uh, but uh, sitting at lunch, sitting in a restaurant, a coffee shop with Fred Lukey and other young scholars was really an intellectual delight, an opportunity to really talk history, to talk scholarship, to learn. And so that experience for me was exceedingly important in giving me knowledge, understanding, and maybe also the confidence to go ahead and work in a field of history which didn't quite, in the late 70s and 80s, have the cachet that other fields of history have. I often joke that uh, I, I should have worked in one little village in the south of France in the 16th century, and then I'd been a real scholar. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not crying tears about this. I've had a very good career, and I've been very fortunate. But uh, when I was young, it seemed to me that you were sometimes judged on the subject of your scholarship rather than the quality of your scholarship. So if you worked in the Midwest, uh, sophisticates who worked in the history of Germany in the 1920s might well think that, uh, well, that can't be serious scholarship. Uh, there's just nothing there worthy of uh, serious scholars' attention. And so you were sometimes lumped with, uh, with amateurs, with um, uh, local uh, historians and writers and such. Um, and that's why having a network of people that you could talk to, having a structure uh, with an organization, a journal, and all the other attributes seems to me to be essential to, to each of us individually, but also to the community of scholars that's interested in the history of the do you think it's still a problem, Jim, uh, for the Midwestern field overall, that there are critics of the field um, who think that the field is too nostalgic and too unsophisticated, and therefore they aren't interested in joining the field and joining inquiries about the Midwest? Yeah, of course there are. And uh, that's, a, that's a double-edged sword because... Uh, uh, and on the one hand, I'm very much an advocate for the people's history. I'm going to go back to Turner on that, too, if I can, John, a little later. But I'm an advocate for making the tent of history as broad and as open as it could possibly be. And so I do a lot of projects and speaking and work with people who are not scholars, who have no PhD uh, uh, at all, and, and are doing their own history in their own kind of way. And I think they're very important to the enterprise that academics are engaged in, that scholars are engaged in, and we need their perspective, we need their work uh, in all kinds of ways. Just genealogy is perhaps the best example, but many other ways as well. I've, I've been traveling in the state of Indiana a lot in the last year, and I see people in local historical societies, museums, and elsewhere, 
who have their little research projects, and sometimes they're actually very big research projects and quite interesting. One case in point here is, is the Underground Railroad in this part of the Midwest, which uh, has been the subject of scholarship for a long time, but in the last decade or two, lots of local historians, not scholars, have taken up the subject and just researched it, burrowed down deep into local sources in their particular community and come up with new understandings, new, new knowledge about the Underground Railroad. We know now, for example, here in Indiana, and I think in other states as well, it wasn't just white people, it was African-Americans, particularly African-Americans, who played major roles in the Underground Railroad, helping fugitive slaves escape into free territory, into free states. Uh, and that comes from scholars, of course, but it comes also from this large number of people doing research in local sources who are not scholars. So uh, I don't want to. I don't want to be part so much of an organization that becomes an elite group of, of pointy-headed academics. Uh, I, I would like us all to be open to those who are not academics and not scholars and don't have PhDs. Um, but we need to we need to uh, we need to be scholars and we need to work as scholars and with scholars in that community of scholarship as well, and that's where Midwestern History Association, especially, I think, plays the role that we need played if we're going to continue to do the work we want to do. Just to follow up on your comment about the research, just to follow up on your comment about recent research by public historians and their work on the Underground Railroad, I'd just like to note that the Midwestern History Association did award this year's Midwestern History Association Public History Prize to the Elgin History Museum uh, in Elgin, Illinois, which put together an exhibit about the Underground Railroad and African American history in Elgin, Illinois. I saw the announcement of that award to the Elgin Museum, and I think that's a wonderful example of what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm going up to northern Indiana next week to speak uh, in Valparaiso, where there's the Porter County Museum. They're doing an exhibit on homelessness, a historical exhibit on homelessness that, of course, connects past and present, as many of these public history and local history museums and projects are now doing today. And so they're not they're not stuck in the past in an antiquarian way. The good ones, many of them, and they're getting better, I think, are doing that kind of uh, public... One other follow-up uh, to your comments about the Newberry Library and what a breeding ground it was for social history, etc., in the 1970s, uh, and that is uh, to note a recent publication by Studies in Midwestern History, which is the online history journal of the Midwestern History Association. Uh, studies recently published an article by Mark Friedberger, uh, who was a full-time researcher under Richard Jensen at the Newberry in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I, came, I first came to know about Friedberger's work uh, after reading his book on the 1980s farm crisis in Iowa entitled Shakeout. Um, if you're interested in his reflections on the Newberry and his time there, uh, you might want to see that recent piece in Studies in Midwestern History. 
And and let me just, I guess I've said enough about the Newberry project, but, but <laughs> as I'm talking about and thinking about and remembering it, and I hope not romanticizing it, it was so very important. And um, I've long wished that um, someone would create a updated 21st century, century version of that. Um, the University of Chicago, of all places, tried it in the 1980s, and they had a project going under Barry Coro that has some possibilities and then it sort of slipped away. So there have been other efforts to, to build on what the Newberry did. Uh, I think the Midwestern History Association Conference in Grand Rapids is an example of some of that. Uh, but also I think folding into it <clears throat> an institutional location. There is some indication that the Newberry under Brad Hunt uh, may undertake an initiative to bolster Midwestern history in coming years uh, based on some preliminary discussions we've had. So we will keep our fingers crossed for that. Yeah, I hope so, too. The Newberry, in some ways, is the place. And uh, I've talked to uh, Dr. Hunt about this very subject uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and pushed very hard, from one place at least, for the Newberry to... Uh, it requires funding, of course, and uh, yet the Newberry is, is a wonderful example of the kind of institution uh, in which this would uh, work very, very well. Yes, let's, uh, let's, let's hope that Dr. Brad Hunt comes. Let's hope that uh, Brad comes through. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are chatting today with Jim Madison of Indiana University. Jim, you recently published a new history of Indiana entitled Hoosiers. Can you tell us a bit about the origins of this book? In, in the early 1980s, and in fact, I was working on this at the Newberry Library Park, um, published in 1986. I say when I talk about this in public, it was so long ago that, that I wrote it on a typewriter. <laughs> and some people listening to this will know what I'm talking about, some may not. Um, but it was long ago in terms of historiography. What we did not know in the 1980s compared to what we know now, not just factual information, such as information on the Underground Railroad that we talked about earlier, but new perspectives. Uh, we, really, we really turned the lens of history in the last 30 years in a wonderful way that makes me very excited about the discipline that I fell into, luckily. Uh, there's so many new ways of thinking about our past, of thinking about our region, of thinking about our state and our communities, that it's just exciting. And so what this meant for the book I published in 1986 called The Indiana Way was that it was really more and more out of date, and I was embarrassed about it. Uh, it's been used in college classrooms and other ways, and uh, <clears throat> I... I started not to like that as much as I did when it first appeared. And so I decided that I, for that reason alone, needed to write a new history of Indiana. It was also the case that I knew Indiana's bicentennial was coming in 2016, and I thought, well, maybe someone will pay attention to this book because of the bicentennial. <clears throat> and so I stopped teaching and went full-time into research and writing and spent several years writing a new history of Indiana. And that's the subtitle of the book, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana, published by Indiana University Press and the Indiana Historical Society in 2014. And I hope, my intention was, to write an up-to-date scholarly volume 
400 pages, not huge, but not thin, that was also accessible. That is, that a non-scholar, a non-PhD person could read and understand and follow. And I'll leave to others to decide whether I've succeeded at that, but that's my, uh, that was my goal. And the book, I'm pleased to say, has sold very, very well. And um, I've been, because of the bicentennial part, all over the state, talking about it and uh, talking about Indiana history and Midwestern history. The cover is very uh, beautiful. and Jim, the cover of your book, Hoosiers, is very beautiful and eye-catching. And it looks like a John Stuart Curry or someone similar to that. Can you tell us more about the story behind the cover on your book? You're close, John. It looks like Curry or some of the other Midwestern so-called regionalist, regionalist artists, but it's, uh, it's uh, instead uh, uh, Thomas Hartman. And the story there is quite interesting because that mural, which is now, which was created for the Century of Progress exhibition in Chicago in 1933, uh, where the states featured themselves, uh, Indiana wisely, amazingly chose to hire Benton to produce this mural. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, massive set of canvases that depict the history of Indiana and of the Midwest. And I think it's just brilliant. It is now located on the campus of my university here in Bloomington, Indiana. People can come and see the actual mural hung in our auditorium and a few other buildings. And it is the treasure of our campus at Indiana University. It's really the treasure of the state of Indiana, one of the treasures of the Midwest, because Benton really did understand the Midwest. And he understood the people of the Midwest. And he tried in that mural, and this so fits the 1930s, he tried in that mural to do a kind of people's history of Indiana. There are notables in there, of course, and stories of great events, but it's really the story of people, of the pioneer Hoosiers, of, um, of workers, of all the other ranges of people, including the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana in the 1920s, that are depicted in this, in this wonderful mural. So I, uh, I decided that um, I'd had uh, one of Benton's mural panels on my first Indiana book published in 1986. <clears throat> I also decided I loved Benton so much I was going to have another one. And so not being entirely stupid when it comes to selling books, I chose a mural which I liked for a lot of reasons, but also because <clears throat> it has on the right edge a massive figure of a basketball player. And here in Indiana, basketball is still part of our religious experience. Indeed. Uh, I noticed one of the first things that you address in the book is the meaning of the term Hoosier. I noticed one of the first things you addressed in the book is the meaning of the term Hoosiers. Can you tell us what that means? Well, I get that. I've been getting that question for 40 years. Whenever Indiana University is in a basketball tournament, I get a call from uh, someone in the media. But uh, uh, I get it every time I speak, and people come up and tell me what they think it means, and I love that. That's that's an engaged connection to the past. Um, and so I decided I'll, I'll just start off this book by getting rid of that question uh, and provide the answers uh, that have been given. And there have been dozens of answers given to what the word Hoosier means, where it came from. Uh, we have it in letters written from Indiana in the 1830s. 
using the word Hoosier. It's probably used before, so it's 200 years old. Um, the answer to the question is we don't know. We'll probably never know what the word means or where it came from because there's been so much work, research on that question. We'll probably never know. And I like that. It makes it makes Hoosiers a kind of mystical, magical people. You know, we have a problem in the Midwest. Outsiders see us as kind of plain vanilla uh, with not much of a history. And I've been on a mission for a long time to contradict that uh, that notion. It's often called the flyover notion of, of the coasts, especially, and others. And even people in the Midwest, this is really the problem. People in the Midwest who think there's nothing interesting here. And um, I'm, I've been on a mission, as you are too, John, and many of us who do Midwestern history, to disabuse people of, of that wrong-headed belief about the Midwest as lacking interest, as just flat and featureless with uh, vanilla as the only color. Uh, and there's so many ways you could dig into that in, in, in um, specific stories. And I think when you're talking to the general public, you need specific stories. You can't talk about this to, to the public in a kind of abstract way. Uh, there's no reason to invoke Foucault or any other so-called scholar to, uh, to discuss this question in the public, and maybe not even with fellow scholars. Uh, we, we, uh, we all like stories. We need stories. We need good stories that make the point about the Midwest, about Indiana, as a particular place. We're Hoosiers here, and uh, most of us are very proud to be Hoosiers, despite some dumb things that our state has done. In, uh, in 200 years, and even in the last year or two. Uh, and we have It's often said that Indiana is the most southern Midwestern state. Can you tell us more about that question and what that comment means? Yeah, that's a fascinating question about Indiana. And there have been uh, dozens of books and articles written on that. And I spent a lot of time reading and thinking about that question, and it's still it's still a fascinating question to me. It's an example of an old Turnerian kind of question. Frederick Jackson Turner was very much into this. Uh, it's the movement and migration of Americans westward, in this case uh, northwestward, uh, and what that meant for the politics and culture and societies they created as they moved across the Appalachian Mountains and across the Mississippi River. And that's what Turner was doing and generations of scholars were doing. And I find it still a fascinating question, a question that still deserves the attention of young scholars using the tools of the 21st century uh, to study these population movements and the cultural consequences of them. For Indiana, the answer to your question, John, is that the, the earliest uh, people coming to the state from the east um, and the ones coming in largest numbers were from the upland south, not the tidewater south. They came not only slaves. Uh, they were farmers, they came in families. Uh, the classic case of that migration is the family of Abe Lincoln, his parents and his sister. And they came to Indiana in 1816, 200 years ago, almost exactly from where we are today. And they are so typical in their upland south culture and ways and the patterns of their lives, uh, shared by thousands of others from the upland south. And they settled in southern Indiana, these upland southerners, in very large numbers, and they, they chose the tunes to be played on the jukebox. They set the culture. They uh, set the politics. 
They decided how you build a barn, how you worship God, uh, how you live as family members, male and female. So everything uh, that they laid down in the very early 19th century in southern Indiana became the dominant culture. And it influenced the rest of the state so that Indiana does indeed have an up and south uh, tradition culture that continues to the 21st century. The people in southern Indiana still have today uh, large remnants of their uh, of their origins um, generations earlier. But uh, when everyone mentions the most southern and northern states, that's maybe true for the case of Indiana, uh, I'm quick to point out that in 1861, in, um, in the war against slavery, in the war that destroyed slavery, Indiana was second in per capita Union soldiers only to the state of Delaware. So lots and lots of Hoosier boys went off and fought. One of the most interesting points you make in the book, Jim, is the impact of the Civil War on Indiana and how after the Civil War, Indiana began to formally situate itself among the other states in the region and its its identity came into clear focus. I was thinking about this recently when I was asked to review a book, which was essentially a history of the novel Rain Tree County. And this book was written by Larry Lockridge, uh, the son of the author of Rain Tree County. Um, for our listeners not familiar with this book, the author, the author uh, Ross Lockridge, lived in Bloomington and his book became very famous for a few years at least when it went up to number one on the bestseller list. And uh, then, um, unfortunately, he committed suicide right in the midst of all that success. But, but the book really focuses very heavily on Civil War Indiana and the impact that the war had on Indiana in the late 19th century. Yeah, it, it does. And uh, <clears throat> I like that book, Rain Tree, County, Rain Tree County, quite a bit. Not everyone likes it. It's a very unusual book, uh, published right after World War II in the late 40s. Uh, but I like it, and I know lots of other people who have read that book, even recently, as well as Larry Lockridge's biography, his phone of it. Uh, the book suffers from the fact that the film made of it uh, turned out to be not so good in the eyes of critics and most viewers, but the book, in this case, is much better than the film. Jim, in your book, uh, you also talk about... Jim, in your book, you discuss the difficult history of race relations in Indiana. And in another book that you've written, you um, you focus on the history of one particular lynching in Indiana. Can you talk a little bit about how historians of Indiana and others have dealt with this history? Well, I, I going back to uh, to my infancy in the nursery of, uh, of scholarship uh, uh, with these descendants of Frederick Jackson Turner, um, good people uh, who believed in justice and equality for all, but a generation of scholars in the four, 1940s, 50s, into the 60s, who really did not write very much at all about issues of race, who did not write about African Americans. 
And so in Indiana, the default was that Hoosier pioneers were white. Um, and I knew many of these scholars uh, as a young person who, who wrote wonderful history. But you look in the indexes of their book, and this becomes, of course, much clearer much later on. You look in the indexes of their book, and the references to Negro or colored or black are few and far between. And we have a history here. The Indiana Constitution of 1816, which we're celebrating this year here in Indiana, uh, is a wonderful statement of democracy. It's like Tunarian democracy in its guarantee of rights and freedoms. And yet it gives the right to vote in Indiana in 1816 to white men only. A lot of what I write in my book Hoosiers is an effort to explain how people in Indiana dealt with that restriction on democracy in 1816. And over the next 200 years, a lot of the history is about that restriction and the ways in which Indiana and other Midwestern states have opened up and built the tent of democracy larger, wider, uh, to incorporate all Hoosiers. Uh, that to me is one of the most fascinating questions in Indiana history, in Midwestern history, uh, in American history, not just African Americans, but all those who have been judged at one time not part of the mainstream, whatever that might be. And so every Midwestern state, every Midwestern community has its own stories, its own heritage, its own tragedies when it comes to, to these kinds of issues. And it's not about political correctness, as some will dismiss it. It's, it's about a history that is what Turner wanted. It's the history of the people. It's the history of all the people now from a 21st century perspective. So I think that is one of the single most important general areas of scholarship still on our table today, despite all the work that's been done. There's still so much that we need to know about that. Our guest today has been James H. Madison who is the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor of History Emeritus at Indiana University. Jim is the author of the recent book, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana. Jim is this year's recipient of the Frederick Jackson Turner Award, which is presented every year by the Midwestern History Association for lifetime achievement in the field of Midwestern history. Congratulations once again, Jim, and we look forward to seeing you in St. Paul in late October, where you will receive this award. I plan to be in St. Paul, John. Thank you very much. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.